Whistling Hens, and I am Jennifer Piazza Pick. I am Assistant Professor of Music in Voice at Queen's University of Charlotte in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natalie Groom. I'm the clarinetist of Whistling Hens, and I teach clarinet at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and I also work at Washington Performing Arts in D.C. Awesome. So happy to have both of you here and to talk about your wonderful group. So I know why you are called Whistling Hens because I did my little research because I was very curious about the name. Um, But can you let our listeners know why your group is called Whistling Hens and what kind of inspired you to start your duet? Well, Whistling Hens comes from a biography I was reading Natalie and I had just met uh, at the beginning of our doctorate degrees in at the University of Maryland College Park. We were in a research class together and we were like, hey, I like you. Hey, I like you too. So let's let's form a duo. But soprano clarinet, what is there besides Shepherd on the Rock? Hmm. And especially <laughs> without piano. Um, so as we started looking and knowing that we wanted to work together, um, I was reading a biography of Nadia Boulanger, and in it was a quote from a male critic of her sister, Lily, and it said, women composers are at best whistling hens. And immediately I called Natalie and was like, found her name. Woo-hoo. <laughs> yeah, and that was actually printed in the New York Times in 1918, which is so wild and just a wow. fun aside from that, that we just realized this year. So that quote was from 1918 and we found it in 2018. So at the centennial of of that horrid quote, that became the inspiration for our name. That's awesome. And it's kind of an interesting combination having a soprano and a clarinetist. Like you said, there isn't much rep out there for, for those two in a combination like that. So did you just decide because you were in this class together, oh, it'd be cool to collaborate on some projects? What kind of inspired you to make it like a permanent sort of group that you would continue to work together on? Yeah, you know, coming from, for me, coming from a chamber music instrumental chamber music background it's not so crazy to just have friends in classes and be like yeah let's play play some music together Mm -hmm. and so that kind of thing was always on my mind and especially with chamber music being like a requirement in lots of degree paths it's pretty frequent that students will be uh seeking out other students to make to make groups like that but we really um kind of bonded during this class just because it was uh it had some unique challenges that we were able to talk about and i don't know just through talking with each other, we realized we were both um, on this journey of spotlighting women composers. I think Jen had been on that journey for longer than I had. And for me, I had just started thinking about it. And it was, I, I don't even know what prompted it. I just remember thinking about all of the recitals I had done, you know, in three degrees before, before coming to get my doctorate. And I realized with some shame that I couldn't, think of a single woman composer that I had ever programmed on a recital. And it wasn't that I was actively trying not to. Um, It's just that when, I guess, when looking at all the quote unquote standards um, that were required for auditions or for anything that I would need, you know, like for scholarships or summer festivals, there just wasn't music by women there. So anyway, I had started looking into that. And so um, that's how, how Jen and I connected. And I also remember the first time I heard her sing, which was her her recital that first semester, and I thought, oh my gosh, 
She's <laughs> amazing. I have got to find a way to work with her. And I mean, we were friends and we would talk, we'd do stuff, we'd have lunch and stuff. But, you know, I was always like, ah, voice and clarinet, what could we possibly do? And didn't really go forward with any kind of, you know, tangible plan or idea until almost a year after we had met. And I just remember thinking over the summer about things I wanted to do or people I wanted to work with. And I wrote Jen an email and I said, you know, I don't know what we could do. We're voice and soprano, but we've got to do something together. Let's figure it out. And that was kind of um, the beginning of our, of our journey to find repertoire. And, you know, to the point of there's not a lot of repertoire out there. We started with um, clarinet, soprano, piano trios, because mm. that was a little bit easier to find um, some pieces for that. And that's what we did on our first recital together in Jennifer's lecture recital. So really it's a friendship and that connection was what brought us together. And Whistling Hens as a brand didn't come till later as we workshopped things together and um, noticed really clear value alignment. Yeah, that's great. And I, I noticed, you know, just taking a look at your website and kind of checking things out about you and, and listening to you to perform, which by the way, you sound amazing. So nice, nice work there too. Um, but you, you started to mention that you, you advocate for women composers when you choose repertoire and things like that. So obviously that's important. And Natalie, I kind of found myself reflecting on, you know, my own experience as a college student and going into the professional world and realizing that I, as a woman trumpet player, never performed a piece by a female or any other identifying composers except for men um, all the way through. And that, again, had to do with, you know, what's on those standard lists, those state lists, things like that. It becomes very constricting, you know, what colleges require on their audition list, which I've noticed is kind of starting to change a little bit. Some schools are starting to be a little more generalized. So students have some more options there. Um, so in talking about that advocacy work and, and purposely programming works by um, women composers, how important is that to you with your values as as your duo? And, you know, maybe what are some of your favorite composers that you've worked with? Because I know you do some commissions and stuff like that. Um, if you want to delve in a little bit on that commission work. Well, our I mean, our value is promoting women composers, not only in performance, but also working towards financial equity mm -hmm. um, for women in this business. Um, so everything we only, as a duo, only perform women composers. Now, that doesn't mean that outside of our work as Whistling Hens, we don't perform men. Um, <laughs> we, we do perform all composers, but under the guise of Whistling Hens, we do only perform women composers. Um, and honestly, I think it's really important that we are, are striving for equity in terms of what we put up on the stage. Um, something that Natalie and I have talked a lot about is that also as educators, it's important to us that we are programming and assigning pieces for our students that are also by women composers, because I don't think yeah. we change this narrative only as performers. When my freshman undergraduate or my high school private student is singing women composers regularly, then it's not some big eye-opening thing for them as they grow into professionals. Uh, so I'm, I personally find that a really important part of my work as an educator, 
and then I like my students to see me also doing it um, and it's really important for me to be out there with whistling hens so that they see that this is also something normal in our field that mm -hmm. we don't just perform the same leader every year in your lesson yeah it's that lead by example idea for our students and I think of you know you know, back in, you know, when I was in high school, things like that, I didn't really know where to look for pieces to play. So I think it's really important that we share resources as well. I do a whole project with my students every year where I share with them how I choose repertoire and I give them a list of, you know, all the different sites or resources that I use and I have them go and create their own program and use the resources that I'm looking at as well. So they're kind of teaching themselves, oh, okay, this is where I would go if I'm trying to find, you know, a saxophone solo for this or whatever. And I purposely pick, you know, sources that are from all different people of all different walks of life, right? Not just your stereotypical, oh, we're just going to do a Google search and I'm just going to see what I get on like JW Pepper or something like that. I'm being pretty purposeful um, with that. And then that way I'm kind of, again, like teaching them how to find it for themselves. And I'm always obviously a resource for my students as well. I can kind of give them that like guiding hand, but I think it is important, like you said, to lead by example in that way. Cause like we could do what we can professionally as performers, but it's important that we're bringing our students up where that's more of the norm as well. Not just playing the same, you know, standard rep over and over and over again. So I do agree with you there for sure. Yeah. And, a, you know, a key thing that you're highlighting here is just access to and knowledge of resources. So mm -hmm. it's really easy to operate in a state of overwhelm. And even I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I definitely found myself there when I was first looking for repertoire. And so, you know, part of what we do often, people will write to us and be like, oh, you know, we heard you play at such and such conference or we found your website or we can share, you know, lists of people that either we've worked with directly or um, that we just have in our own library that we can refer people to. And it's, you know, we can't change the status quo when there are barriers in the way. So yes, we can lead by example. Yes, we can be performing, commissioning, recording music by women. But really a root cause uh, analysis would, would show that when people just don't have access, they'll make up excuses to not practice yeah. equity and diversity. And so, you know, let's say somebody is of the mindset that, yeah, you know, I want to try to diversify my, my programming. You just don't have a lot of great ways to find music. Like, what are you going to search for? Like, if you search for clarinet and soprano music by women composers, maybe you will come up. I don't even know. <laughs> but, you know, you're sifting through just pages and pages of, of, of data. You know, if you're going through a library catalog, you can't search by any kind of demographic criteria. It doesn't certainly doesn't tell you like the gender of an author. Um, if you're sifting through something like J.W. Pepper or Sheet Music Plus and those kinds of um, databases, you know, it's a, it's the same problem there. So it is, it is a bit overwhelming. And I think if we can keep building this network of people um, who have a little bit more of the know-how, who have access to those resources and can compile those for people and can present at conferences to share with people, hey, this is possible and here's how we can make it easier for you to do so. I think we can um, remove those barriers, which thus makes our programming world more equitable. And as we're mentioning resources, the thing that's really interesting, I think, is you know, there are some resources, but I don't, 
think they're exceptionally well known, like the Institute yeah. for Composer Diversity, um, that Hildegard Publishing publishes historical women composers. If you go to Glendower Jones' uh, classical vocal reprints in the vocal world, he uh, has Clarnon uh, publishing under his umbrella now, and he has a, a wide selection. But you have to know that those resources exist when you're going to search. Yeah. Um, you, Natalie, you're right. Like at, at an institution, at an academic institution, you're probably going to have a hard time unless you have some specific composer names that you're looking for. Yeah, and I always thought it would be interesting, not just from a, a performance standpoint, but from an education standpoint to like have part of, you know, if you're signed to be a music educator, part of your class requirements to be in some way, shape or form, like finding repertoire that you could use for, you know, different levels of ensemble or, or solo um, from different resources and create a diverse program, because I think that would help you know, professors be able to share with their students ways that they've found different resources. And that kind of can create some sort of community where everybody kind of shares what they found. And then that way, when we put teachers out into the world, which, you know, everyone starts being taught music in some capacity, right? Um, then we already have that being the norm. So I always thought it would be a cool idea, like whether it's for, you know, maybe a choral methods class someone's taking or something like that to be able to be challenged to create those things. I know I've done that in a couple of my methods courses when I was um, when I was in school and it was really awesome for me. And, you know, being like a trumpet player and instrumentalist, I was challenged to create a choir program for like a middle school choir. And I was, you know, supposed to make it for, for, um, a diverse pool of students. So I was trying to pull things from all different countries and different gender identifying composers. And I had to have some like secular music and maybe a little sacred music. And I was trying to combine it all together and still have a central theme to it. So it was a very challenging project, but I learned so much about here's where I find everything um, as well. So I wish we did more of that stuff, even just at the college level of just showing people, okay, here's how we, we find those things. And I think teachers and professors at the university level need to challenge their students to to take on that music a little bit more and find more new music and composers that are still alive <laughs> and that they can have conversations with. I think that would create such a cool music community because it is very small and having a relationship with a composer is so helpful when performing their music. So, Yeah, I'd add that uh, in some ways it was easier for us because there's mm -hmm. almost no repertoire that exists for clarinet and soprano. So it was a very niche area yeah. to, to look into. So it kind of forced our hand in a lot of ways to be looking at transcriptions um, and commissions. But, you know, if we were a string quartet, that makes it mm -hmm. way harder to sift through the gazillions and gazillions of, res of results. And that's really how our, our, ensemble transition to a primarily com commission-based focus yeah. just not being a lot of rep out there and our first couple pieces were transcriptions um, we transcribed some works by Rebecca Clark that were originally for soprano and violin um, we have this American folk suite which is five movements by Sharice Leiter that was for flute and soprano and really any kind of trebly instrument worked okay um, mm -hmm. For clarinet and soprano or there's one that we have that's for b-flat trumpet that i just play on b-flat clarinet um, nice but yeah that's really how we 
got into that whole world and built these relationships with all these really amazing, interesting living women composers. I personally had not worked with a lot of living composers before that because, I don't know, everything in the quote unquote standard rep is old dead white guys from Europe for the most part. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So talking about these commissions and and working with living composers, um, what are some of the current projects that you might be working on together or maybe some projects that you have going on in the future that you'd like to talk about? What are what are those plans looking like for you two? Well, we um, we just finished a major project. <laughs> we launched our first album on October 1st. Uh, so this has been a labor of love and it was just kind of an amazing thing. Um, we'd been talking about doing an album and then um, it wasn't really a thing. And then at my previous institution, I saw this call for the faculty research grants and it was a good chunk of change. And I was like, um, should I apply for this for an album? And I was like, yeah, sure. If you get the money, then we'll have to do it. And I got the money. So, we had to <laughs> so do now it. you have to do it. Yep. <laughs> um, so we um, and we're really grateful to Georgia College and State University's faculty research grant, Georgia College, uh, Georgia College's Women's Giving Circle, who gave us the initial money to start this project. And then um, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, the Drescher Fund that uh, sponsored this album, the Maryland State Arts Council, and also a tremendous number of individual donors who gave to our Facebook birthday fundraisers. Um, we're really grateful for the individual support for women composers. Um, so we just released our album, it's called Reacting to the Landscape. And it, the title comes from uh, a quote by Marin Alsop, the former Baltimore Symphony Orchestra conductor and the first female to lead a major orchestra, who said about a course she was running on uh, women for women conductors, excuse me, people ask why a course like this is necessary, and I think it's a disingenuous question. It's only necessary because of the reality. It's not something I'm making up. I'm just reacting to the landscape. Mm. So reacting to the landscape became the title for our album. Thank you, Marin Alsop. And our album includes seven living American women composers, five commissions and three additional pieces that were written or transcribed for us. And we were lucky to um, collaborate with women founded or women run businesses, including our cover art by Masayo Hosseini, the Digipack design by Leda Black, um, our launch party partners at Denison's Brewing, and also in collaboration with all of this, we've commissioned a women composers coloring book that um, we have commissioned through Dynamic Doodle Company. And although that was a lot, and you, by the way, <laughs> you can find Reacting to the Landscape on all of your major digital platforms. Woo! Yay! And you can order a physical copy from us at our website, whistlinghens.com, if you want to. But now that that project's behind us, you'd think we would take a breath, but you would be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so at our launch party events and launch party concerts, we gave our first commission premiere for the season. Jennifer Stevenson, um, who won the Darkwater Women in Music call for scores when we were the ensemble in residence in the fall of 2021, 
she wrote us a brand new piece called Musical Invective, and it uses um, negative critiques of famous composers from a book called The Musical Invective. Um, and we premiered that at our launch party events. Uh, we have a commission with composer Kimberly, Os Kimberly Osberg coming up in March, a commission with Melissa Dunphy that's going to be coming up in July. And I can now officially say out loud that we are one of the recipients of the Chamber Music America Classical Commissioning Award this year with composer Kate Sober. Awesome, that's so great, congratulations. So, you know, nothing going on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you both sound very busy, but it's all good, positive things. So I'm so happy for you. So that's really awesome. Um, and talk about promoting women, because you not only were playing music by women composers, but you had all those female-run businesses involved and invested in your album. So I think that's really cool that, you know, down to the album artwork, you had women involved um, and your launch party and things like that. I think that's really awesome that you're promoting, you know, not just women musicians, but people outside of, of the music world as well. Um, and with all these projects that you have going on, do you have any advice for maybe someone who's listening, who's thinking about maybe starting a, a chamber group um, and is thinking about trying to find new music or commissions or works by women composers, like how do you go about reaching out about commissions? Do people come to you? Maybe some advice you might have about how do they get started? You know, our first commission happened by accident. <laughs> um, Natalie was artist in residence at a retirement living community um, called Collington in Maryland. And we were just together getting started. And we had spent a week in the summer in residence at Avalok Music Farm and prepping sort of a concert. And we went to Collington to try it out. And after the performance, we got a check from the Women's History Club. Is that right, Natalie? Women's History Club? Um, we got That's a check. Fine. Yeah, we got a check to commission women composers. And then we were like, oh, I guess we have to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had um, just just gone to the Music by Women Festival in Mississippi. And we had met Ashy Day, who is a composer in Washington, D.C., and Cherise Leiter, who we mentioned earlier. Um, and so that money sort of helped us talk with them and work on creating commissions. Um, so mm -hmm. I guess my first thought on commissioning is that you never know where money might come from to support commissions. Yeah. Um, it's really, really fortunate. We were also really fortunate because we were students at the time that the University of Maryland College Park um, in the School of Music has the incubator grants to help mm. students fund projects. And so um, they helped us also fund a commission. That's Not great. Me. I know you have more than me. Well, so, well <laughs> gosh, this, this is a huge topic. I mean, and we've, we've talked about even doing panels on this kind of thing of like how to commission and how to start an ensemble and do all those things. And, Gosh, there's so much to unpack there. But, you know, the business e side of being a performer can't be understated. You know, yeah. sometimes it feels like you spend 85 to 90% of your week 
doing business and admin tasks and the other is performing and practicing, which she would like mm-hmm. it to be the opposite, right? Social media. <sighs> Social media. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Um, so at least my experience in the schools that I went to was it was a little bit more, I guess, quote, normal or traditional for a ch- for chamber music ensembles to form, instrumental chamber music ensembles to form, but not so typical in the vocal world because you know, they're doing opera, they're doing collaborations with pianists. So I had actually done several um, like semi-professional chamber ensembles. I was specializing in wind quintet repertoire. So I had been through the cycle of some really dedicated groups that had done competitions and stuff. And through just doing those things, learning the business skills of how do we launch this? How do we pick a name? How do we, you know, start a social media and build a press kit and a website and make cold calls for gigs and review contracts and all of these businessy administrative things that you have to do just to even, you know, like have a name and be able to be doing things. Um, And then when it comes to commissions, Jennifer spoke a lot to that already. But the other thing I'd add is um, not being afraid to read contracts thoroughly and do research and you know, spell things out really clearly. And if you have a question, just ask. You can always be in touch with us too. We've done this a lot and have a lot of different angles of coming at it. I think the thing people worry about most with commissioning is usually funding. And um, like Jen said, we're, we're lucky to have some internal funding sources from either being students or being faculty. But So people forget in this very transactional dollar-based culture that there is a lot of value in bartering. So you can negotiate commissioning deals that are win-win scenarios because they place whatever your current, you know, uppermost value is, you can barter on those values. So sometimes, yes, cold hard cash is absolutely the way to go. And especially as you reach out to more like quote-unquote famous composers. That's often the way that it goes. But especially with the early and mid-career composers that we typically work with, and we want to do that because we want to um, get these women into the next, you know, tier so that they can be getting that cold hard cash all the time. There are things we've bartered like, um, we will perform it a minimum of five times we will, you know, give you a recording that is of a high enough audio and video quality that you can use it for grant applications, for awards, for conference proposals, for tenure track review, for all of those things. Um, you can ask for and or give up performance exclusivity rights or recording rights. Um, I We found that a lot of times composers are way more interested in how many times you'll perform it and if they can get a recording they would often rather have that than, I don't know, $10,000 and you play it once and nobody ever touches it again. So the pieces that we have, they usually sit with us and we typically average something like six to eight performances of each piece that's in our repertoire. Um, And there have been other times where we're working with a composer who might just not be familiar with its instrumentation. So they kind of want to use us as a test subject, like, hey, can we have some iterative feedback Um, where I'll write something for the clarinet and you tell me if this is possible on the clarinet. And so it's, it's collaborative, which is a win, but it's also educational on both sides Mm -hmm. where we can learn more about 
the instruments as individuals and then also writing together so we can give feedback as a duo and um, say, well, we've played pieces like this before. And when the voice crossing happens this way or there's this distance in range, it tends to not work. So we could go on about that for forever, but there's lots of ways that you can trade value even if you don't have the dollars at play. And to be straight up, we we have always, for a commission, always paid money in some way. But mm-hmm. Natalie's talking about things that might add value to how much mm-hmm. we had. Because yeah. in the beginning, especially, you know, we didn't have something like the Chamber of Music America grant award mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. pay for that. Um, and we had composers who were we're also really willing to negotiate with us. I yeah. think that's probably also important to remember that living composers, um, we want to pay them well, but you can discuss you know, what your budget is and you should be honest about that. Yeah, no, you bring up good points. So it's kind of, in a way you're, you're forming that relationship, you're both promoting each other, right? Like you're promoting their music, uh-huh. they're promoting you as performers. So I think you bring up a really good point with that negotiation thing, because that might not be something that younger people who are, who are trying to form a group like this might necessarily think of. They might need, oh, oh, I need all of this money and all this funding. How am I going to get it? Um, but also for your listeners, there's a lot of grant money to be had out there, especially with um, various community organizations. If you live near a larger city, um, I play with a group called the Cleveland Winds out in Cleveland, Ohio. We just won a grant through the city of Cleveland to be able to put on performances and perform and things like that um, and commission new work. So there is money to be had. You just have to kind of do a little bit of digging and, and, you know, the worst that's going to happen is you're not going to get it right. So it's worth it to, you know, put your hat in the ring, apply um, and do those things. Cause there is, there is money to be had. That's very true. Um, we've had support from uh, local arts councils, state arts councils, mm-hmm. our institutions. And it, there are so many places that you don't maybe necessarily realize that, oh, my city has an arts council and hey, look, they have grants. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So my last question for you, this is your opportunity to plug all of your social media that we were laughing about like two minutes ago. Um, But uh, you have a website, whistlinghands.com, which you mentioned before, so people could check out all your work there. Um, Would you like to plug any other ways that people can find you, contact you if they have any questions, if they're interested in checking out your music? Natalie, you're going to hit us with this one? Oh, sure. I mean, there's a gazillion, to be honest. We we don't keep up on all of them all the time, but every everything you can find centralized on our link tree. So linktr.ee slash whistling hens. All the handles on all the things is always whistling hens. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us there. And then some of the more uh, interesting and important ones that we've added are related to our album release, which you can also find on Linktree, but uh, whistlinghens.bandcamp.com. Uh, where you can stream the music there. You can uh, order physical and digital albums or individual tracks. And also bonus on Bandcamp, if you order physical discs there, it also comes with a free digital download as opposed to other platforms. Um, hmm, should I leave anything out? That's really that's really the big stuff. Yeah, our, our Linktree account will give you all the links to every social, all the socials. Yeah, Link, know, Link Tree is great for that. I don't know if we'll be uh, tweeting much under the tyranny of 
the new regime. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll see the irony that we don't, the, the hens don't tweet as often <laughs> as the other socials. That's all right, though. We don't, we don't need Twitter. We'll function without it. Uh, Natalie and Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing um, all your awesome advice and all the current things that you're working on. I'm so happy that you, you got to come on today and spend a little time um, with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much.